Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Enterprise Linux Security. I'm here, as always, with Zhao. How are you? I'm fine, Jay. As usual, it's a pleasure being here with you. And we have another nice episode for you guys today. Yes, we do. We need to talk about a certain vulnerability report in today's episode because there's some interesting findings in this report. Yeah. And I think it's really going to um, add some more context, not only to the vulnerabilities and the operating systems, but also some of the vulnerabilities that we don't actually think about and probably wouldn't have known about, which we'll get to that in just a moment. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of the interesting points in this report. This is the risk-based security, which is a company that deals on security issues, obviously. Mm -hmm. And they produce this yearly report regarding the number of vulnerabilities and what systems were affected and what providers were affected by it. And they bring out some interesting aspects regarding last year's um, vulnerability numbers. Um, not just regarding the, the pandemic situation, how it affected the number of vulnerabilities being reported, but also a specific category of vulnerabilities that we actually never hear, hear about. They had, and also there was like a record-breaking nearly 29,000 flaws <clears throat> disclosed last year, up from um, just above 23,000 before that. Yeah. And that's pretty staggering. It is. And if you're a system administrator, it boggles the mind how you're able to deal with this and cope with this if you're being affected by some vulnerabilities. Of course, this is an aggregate of vulnerabilities across all different products and all different families. It's not just one specific. So it, this is not just targeting, say, Red Hat stuff or uh, Microsoft or something like that. This is an aggregate of all vulnerabilities that were reported or found or disclosed last year. And um, yeah, there are some pretty interesting numbers here. Um, yep. The obvious one and the first one that they point out is that um, the pandemic had an impact on the number of vulnerabilities being reported. During the first half of the year, during the first half of 2021, because of lockdowns and all the measures in place and how people were not actually working, um, it's noticeable that the numbers of reported vulnerabilities were lower than on the second half of the year where it actually picked up speed. And like you said, um, the numbers were staggering when compared to 2020. And it's not just a fluke. It's not just a one-off situation. This is a trend that has been going since like 2015 or 2016, as every single year has more vulnerabilities than the year before. And not just by one or two more, it's actually thousands more. If you think about it, that works out to more three or four vulnerabilities each day that's being disclosed. Wow. <laughs> and this is mind-boggling. It's on top of the ones that were already being disclosed, and this is just the difference from the year before. So, yeah, the amount of extra work that people have to go through to actually deal with this and patch them and stay on top of just the notifications about them for the systems that they're working on, it's amazing. It really is. And just to set some context, I mean, this goes without saying, but just in case, you know, we when I talk about nearly 29,000 vulnerabilities. That doesn't mean that everyone has 20, you know, 29,000 yeah. patches to install. Um, it's not that bad. Um, it's bad. <laughs> but, you know, obviously you, you install the patches for the software that you use. And if a particular software package has, you know, a bunch of vulnerabilities, but you don't use it, well, then, you know, that doesn't impact you. But it does make it kind of hard to sort between 
the things that do impact you and your company and the things that don't, because um, it's kind of a little easy to just turn a, a blind eye to it, right? But uh, we have to know what affects us and what doesn't and what we can do to mitigate these vulnerabilities that impact our business. Yeah, this goes back to a point that we've made on the podcast previously, that the the sheer number of vulnerabilities that come out and the sheer number of patches that you have to deploy and mitigations that you have to apply whenever a patch is not available, it just numbs you to the, to the news about new vulnerabilities. Rather than focusing on what the vulnerability is actually doing and how dangerous it is, how it uh, interacts with other systems on your infrastructure, your mind just goes, okay, another one I have to patch and move to the next one. I really don't care about what it does. I just need to fix this one and move on. Right. It's just humanly impossible to keep all of this on your mind and be aware of all of them even. It is. Yeah, it's, you can't. I mean, there's just no doing that. Be, be, I mean, you'd be reading, if you read a security, like all the security advisories for all the things that impact you, yeah. I mean, there, there's not enough time in the, in the day to yeah. even get a, a dent in that, let alone the week, month, or even year. Because by the time you, it's almost like the universe, you know, it's expanding. And if you ever read <laughs> the universe, it's already expanded more yeah. and you have to keep chasing it. So it's like if you go fall up, you know, fall down that rabbit hole, you're going to continually um, have things to read. You won't even have thing, you know, time to do anything. So Yeah, and I mean, how, how different is when... <laughs> And of course, my developer friends will be annoyed by this. But how different is one buffer overrun in one function from the buffer overrun on the next function? I mean, right. it's the same mistake. It's the same error. It's the same type of flaw. It's an off by one somewhere if it's a missed check somewhere. In the end, you just need to know how to deploy a patch to it. And if it's a if a patch is already available or not, and you just want to move on. You don't really want to spend hours each day just looking at this information. And right. this, this report just shines a light even further on this point. It's really, really impossible to do this manually. If you, if I know we've said this before, I know I've, re, I've said this before. If you're in a situation where you're re responsible for securing systems, whether as a system administrator or as a part of a security team somewhere, you really need to automate this process. Right. You should have a dashboard in front of you every day that will at least alert you for the critical ones, for the highest rated CVEs that come out. And that will save you some of the time. You should automate the other patches. You should just take the patches and be done with it rather than trying to get through all the knobs. And I know that sometimes there is interesting information on the CV reports, and there is. Right. You might miss some specific point about how applying this patch here. For example, this week, there was a vulnerability on NetFilter code on the, the Linux kernel. And, and this just a couple of days ago when we were recording this. There is this vulnerability on the, the Linux kernel code um, that affect the way that C groups would uh, isolate network between containers. And there was a mitigation that was available before the patches were available. The fine print there was that if you applied the mitigation, containers would stop working. Oh, You would only notice that if you actually read the whole text of the CV. If you didn't read that, you just look at the command that you had to type in to actually solve the problem for your systems. Great, the containers are no longer at risk. You cannot no longer elevate pro your privileges to root, but your containers will also not work. So yeah, hmm. so I guess that might be interesting. Just delete your containers, right? And then they're, yeah. they're not exposed if they're missing. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. 
but this is just the type of things that are in the details. It's the, the part that you'll be missing if you actually don't read the information. But on the other hand, it's impossible to read all of them. So you have to work out the balance between this and your actual needs. And you have to find some tool that will help you automate this. Um, I'm saying find some tool because there are some interesting tools out there, but I don't want to, to be doing some promotion here because each environment will have specific needs and one tool might be great on that environment and the other one not. Just look at um, lifecycle management tools, look at uh, automation yep. tools, um, and find the one that adapts best for your situation. Look for one that has an, a CV dashboard, for example. Right. That's an interesting feature. It will save you time. It will flag the most important uh, vulnerabilities, the one that you should actually spend the time reading all the details about. But just be aware that the other ones, you will miss something. And that's just part of the job. It's the thing right. that you need to balance the missed information with the amount of time that you have. And one is finite, the other is not. So, yeah. Yeah, I would say to, it's a good idea to, I mean, this might go without saying again, but if you can get a service that scans your systems and, like you said, gives you a dashboard of the most important things to fix, that would be very useful. Mm -hmm. um, it's really hard to outline which ones to go with because the prices for these types of services, I mean, they range from like free to where you can just download it and install it and you're fine. I mean, you got a thing and you could use it all the way up to services that are so expensive, they need a statement of work to implement yeah. um, and everything in between. So there, there's such a wide ar array of different things available here. And also how much of your time is spent implementing a solution like this versus the, you know, the time you're saving, there's all these different things to consider, but it's something I think every company should take a look at. And if this is something they can get, uh, maybe the, the free services are enough. If you have people maintaining it properly and keeping an adequate eye on it, making sure that it's working, or you shift the liability to another company um, in a way to have them, you know, implement something for you in exchange for a lot more money because those types of things are not cheap. I've seen the invoice on some of those things and my eyes just crossed. <laughs> <laughs> They're not cheap, but you're paying, you should actually get your money's worth out of a right. contract like that because you're paying yeah. for the know-how, you're paying for someone else's time to actually look at that information. It's not just one person, you're actually contracting the services of a security team somewhere that will actually do that work for you. And it's a trade-off. You can look at that that way and see the cost and just go, wow, I cannot afford this or this is just too expensive. Or you can compare that to actually running a security team in-house if you don't have one and the cost and uh, how hard it is to actually find the right talents to, to hire for a team like that. Because right. it's not just someone that is listening to a podcast or talking on the internet about security. It's actually people that should know what they're doing and should know the ins and outs of the services that you're providing so that they can give you informed um, help and assistance yeah. for your specific cases. I think sometimes I'm more of a fan of, um, excuse me. <clears throat> <clears throat> Sorry. So I think sometimes I'm more of a fan of the services that are external because sometimes internal staff, they know the system so well, they're not you know, necessarily looking at things as deeply as someone who knows nothing, who has to actually, you know, trace steps and trace different things and um, do an external vulnerability scan, for example. So I think it's also a good idea to get 
you know, the results from a third party about your security and things like that. That's also an expensive thing, but it would really save you a lot if they found something that maybe your um, internal employees may not find. And it's nothing against your internal employees. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just human nature, right? You, you, you've built it, you own it, you maintain it every day. So some things just become muscle memory and you don't necessarily look as deeply at certain things as you as someone else might look. It's a type of blindness. And it's interesting that we are talking about things that we don't see because we'll get into that in just a moment. And it's more than just that. But there is a type of blindness that sets in when you're dealing with the same systems day in, day out. You look at what they're doing, you look at what you expect from them, and you don't notice the things that are out of place. You don't notice, for example, the process that instead of taking 10 seconds to complete, it now takes 20 seconds and you don't actually go in and look at why that is happening. And those are signs that something might be wrong with that system. Right. But if you're doing that every day, if you're going into the machine, it just blurs away into the background and you won't notice things like that. Someone that you hire from the outside might take a look and see, oh, this is taking more time to to finish than it's it's supposed to. And they would notice that pattern. So yeah, getting people from the outside sometimes will offer you a fresh set of eyes and will give you new perspective on on your systems. And I was talking about blindness because um, there is something that is also very relevant that I found amazing when I was read this report. Um, For these guys, they came out with a number about some vulnerabilities that were actually disclosed or found somehow. I don't actually have the details here, but they mentioned that 29% of the vulnerabilities of those 29,000 that we mentioned before never had the CVE assigned. Okay, let that Mm -hmm. sink in for a second. Almost one third of all the vulnerabilities that were found last year never had the CVE assigned. On an industry like ours that is so focused on CVEs, where you have tools to track CVEs, where you have companies whose livelihood is to create patches for CVEs, for for fixing CVEs as fast as possible, when you have policies in companies like Red Hat, where if a CVE has a score higher than 7.5, I believe, they have to include the patch for it no matter what. Not having a CVE assigned to a specific vulnerability will make it slip through the cracks. There will be no incentive to fix it. There will be no way to refer to it. There is no infrastructure to actually deal with it. On an industry like ours, where you don't have the infrastructure in place to deal with something that does not have a CV number attached to it, it gets really tricky to to track this type of vulnerabilities. And almost a third of them, it's a really high number for this type of situation. Yeah, it really is. it's, It's like really nerve-wracking in a way because i think it's something that we all think about when we work in this industry in in the back of our minds right you have these um you know these vulnerabilities that we, we know they're out there i think we've all known this we all know they exist that there's no cve attached that people are keeping these close to their chest hoping that no one else finds out about them because if it is discovered in the wild, obviously, someone's going to try to write a patch for it. So if they have something that doesn't have a CVE attached and they know about it, then that's almost like a superpower in a way. But, um, you know, we hear about these types of things, but then, you know, it can happen to any of us, right, where we have something happen. And it's, it's like, well, this doesn't match any of the vulnerabilities I've read about lately. Well, yeah, because there, you know, isn't a CVE about it. You wouldn't have read about it at all. So um, and it could really it, it really intensifies the amount of work because it's like finding a needle in a haystack. You're trying to figure out what could happen 
even though um, you know, you're not really sure if it will happen, but there's all these different thought processes that you have to align that um, be it becomes really challenging for um, security teams to deal with these kinds of things. There are actually a few deeper angles here. Um, there are teams like the, the Linux kernel security team that just mm -hmm. releases patches every now and then, and they don't tell you what they fixed. They tell you, you should apply this patch to be safe but they won't tell you we fix this issue or that one or that one. And they don't really care about CVEs. Uh, Greg Crow Hartman actually has uh, um, a presentation. It's on YouTube. It's why CVEs really don't work. Um, and he goes out of his way to, to point out that CVEs are not a good way to track vulnerabilities because of many aspects that I won't go into here. I believe I've already mentioned this before in a previous episode, actually one of the first ones. Mm -hmm. um, and their policy on the, the security team there is that they just produce the patches. They will fix the security issues. They just won't let you know about which ones they fix. The, the mindset behind that is that if they told you which ones, you could go back and hack installations that were running older kernel versions that hadn't been patched there. So they're actually protecting it both ways. They're protecting the guys that had the pad, that have the patch installed because they will be secure against those vulnerabilities and the ones that had previous versions installed so that they don't get hacked by those vulnerabilities. But there is another aspect to this as well. What you said there was, was on point that uh, it's hard for security teams to track that. And it's even more than that. For most vulnerability scanners, they will actually look for indicators of compromise or look for signatures of non-CVEs. And if you don't have a CVE to look for, they won't use heuristics like an antivirus or not all of them use them. So even a security scanner will not find them. That's why this is so insidious. So it's just a different type of threat that you have. And these are probably the types of things that uh, advanced persistent threat groups that you hear about on the news will be looking for and will hoard for years, like you said. Mm -hmm. like. Rogue states will want this, uh, security firms will want this, the alphabet agencies will want these ones. And these are the types of vulnerabilities that, vulnerabilities that are out there that you may be hit by and that you might not even know about it. The ones that are in your network and you'll never find. That's how, yeah. how nasty this can get. So it, it it's just a big challenge then, it, it, you know, to find out what to do about this kind of thing. and. I don't, I feel like, and correct me if, if you feel differently, but it's like no one thing. And I think that's true of all security. There's no one thing you do that fixes everything. It's all about um, each individual layer, as well as your policies as a company, your disaster prevention policy, your disaster, you know, recovery policy is very important. And um, we're going to talk about policies in other episodes as well. So I won't spend too much time on that here. But what you do as an organization to try to make your builds reproducible, to automate things to where if everything got decimated, you could have everything back up and running um, as quickly as possible. Those, those things are all important, but you always have the possibility that something that's unknown could sneak in, fall through the cracks, and um, you have a problem to solve. Yeah, it's about mitigation of risk. There is no way that no one can ensure you're 100% secure. It's just not possible to do that. If anybody ever tries to sell you something that says that it will solve all of your security issues, they're either lying or they're lying to you or lying to themselves. It's not possible to do that and no one can assure you that. It's just not possible. You could have air gap computers that are still hacked. Mm 
Right. Um, but getting back on point here, mm -hmm. um, I'm based in Portugal. I believe most of our listeners know that. If they not, if they didn't, they know now. Um, a couple of weeks ago, one of the major ISPs here in the country was hacked. They never announced who did it, but what happened was that they took out about four million persons, uh, mobile phone service and internet access and companies and emergency services. And all of that communications network was down for about three or four days. It was a major thing. It opened the news and all that. And this is a global company. It's, it was Vodafone. This is not uh, a secret. It operates worldwide. And their branch here in Portugal was hit and was hit really hard. It brought, it wasn't the target, the, the target was not the system so much, it was the network infrastructure and the attackers managed to take down the network infrastructure. And this is a company that has lots and lots of guys working on their security teams. They daily protect the company against security threats. They do that every day, every single week, every single month, and they're always on top of things. And all it takes is one attack to go through the, the cracks, to find its way through, and they're right. screwed. Yeah, and it was so bad that they had to. What we talked about on that episode regarding how to deal with the, um, the aftermath of a security incident is exactly what they they went through. They actually had to reinstall all the network equipment starting from scratch. They installed the the two and a half G equipment, then the three G, then four G, then five G. They had to reinstall the core routers again. They had to get new equipment because of the lack of trust. They no longer trusted the systems that they had to be secure even after cleaning up the infection. Because, okay, they didn't divulge this information publicly, but I assume it was because they weren't sure about the attack factor, what was actually the way that the attackers got in. So they lost trust on their equipment. And the same thing happens in systems. When you're hacked, even just once, you can have the best defense in the world. You can have all the firewalls, all the application firewalls, all the policies in place and all that. All it takes is one crack, one hole, and the attacker gets in. And at that point, like you said, it's all about your recovery policies. It's all about disaster recovery. It's all about how, how quickly you can get everything back up again, how much you trust your backups at that point, because like we said that on that episode, they may already contain the, the attack vector on them. So if you restore them, it will just go down again. And 100% yeah. security is impossible. You just have to strive for the best that you can, try to catch as much, uh, um, as much of these attacks and vulnerabilities as possible, but you will never be 100% secure. And you have to live with that and have the policies in place to deal with that in case of an attack. Right, right, totally, totally agree. Another thing I thought was interesting about this report, the top 10 um, that they display in this report, which yeah. will be linked obviously here with this episode, is that there's there's no there's no Windows installation <laughs> or no Windows version here. Now, yeah. I have mixed feelings about this because while that's you know noteworthy, um, we have a bunch of different flavors of Linux listed, but to be fair, there's more flavors of Linux than there are version, you know, versions of Windows. So, of course, there's going to be more Linux distributions. But at what, at some point, I kind of feel like some of these numbers could be doubled up because we could have the same Linux kernel, for example, in multiple distributions of the same version. Of course, they're going to share vulnerabilities there, or or libraries or you know other things, but. 
you know, then again, you can't really combine unrelated distributions either. I could probably make an argument for combining the um, subversions of Red Hat Enterprise Linux because you have, you know, x86, uh, 64, you have uh, Z systems and, you know, for IBM and things like that. But um, they also mentioned in the report that even though Microsoft isn't listed in in the top 10, they had an unusually bad year with 1,600 vulnerabilities above uh, 940 from before. So someone can look at this report and say, well, Linux is getting really bad. Microsoft's not even in the top 10. Look at this. Or you could look at it a different way and say, well, yeah, Microsoft had a ton of vulnerabilities and um, there's a lot of different Linux distributions out there to list. So, I mean, it's just a very interesting dynamic to try to uh, work your way through. Yeah, that was basically the elephant in the room on that uh, on that uh, report. Yep. Um, they do mention that on previous years, Microsoft Windows was on the top 10 and they do say that and came out and say that. Um, and I would agree that it would be possible to to merge some of these entries. For example, Debian and Ubuntu, for example, might have right. share some vulnerabilities. That could be then. All of the Red Hat, like you said, could be combined, all the Red Hat Enterprise entries there. Um, but then again, it does shine a light on something different. We always tout open source. And we always say that open source has its merits and all that. And you can look at the problem and you can do all that. And security researchers are doing that and they are finding the issues. You could say, okay, if they looked at Windows code, they would find the same issues. Maybe we will never know because Windows is closed source. So yeah, this might be skewed just because of that. And like we said before, um, you having security researchers at home for a long time with their hands idle and just staring at the walls, it's not very good. So they might start looking at code. And yep. in this case, it looks like they did start looking at code. Did that. <laughs> um, so yeah, there is a top 10 there and it's all just Linux. And that's... Yep a bit a bit of a bummer in one way but also means that people are looking and they are finding the vulnerabilities and they are being fixed so it's making those linux distributions better overall i i totally agree with that i also feel like linux is sometimes a victim of a cult of personality where you know we love linux obviously uh, most of us do right <laughs> obviously we do we like we wouldn't be doing this podcast or putting linux in the name if we didn't like it yeah. but to be fair nothing is unhackable that doesn't mean that linux is perfect if linux was perfect we wouldn't even have a podcast because everything would always be 100% perfect we'd have nothing to talk about but at the same time you have people that brag unnecessarily in the community. They'll say things, for example, Linux works on everything. Just wipe Windows and install Linux. Well, actually, no. No operating system works on 100% of um, hardware. Um, it might and has stands a good chance of working, but it may not. Just like because we're open source doesn't mean we are unhackable. And some people will go as far as to say, well, Linux is the most secure platform out there. We can't get hacked. And you know, none of that's true. But people are listening to that. The media is listening to that. And as soon as you have a situation where this thing that people are bragging about makes, you know, the the entirety of a top 10 list as in a bad way, then obviously the media, they're going to go after that because the people are bragging. They stand out and um, we kind of have this cult of personality. And on this podcast, you know, we, we're not biased. We love Linux. Yes, but we're not going to pretend that Linux is perfect because nothing is 
And I think that's another thing that this top 10 list really illustrates here is that being better does not necessarily mean anything in particular and better could change. We could be the worst at some point. You never really know. Yeah. And the year before the list wasn't like that. And the next year, the list will probably not be like that either. Um, yep. Yeah, that there is some fundamentalism when you're looking at Linux distributions. You like yours and yours is great and there's no flaw in it and it's absolutely marvelous and it will run on everything in the Raspberry Pi that you have in the drawer. And that's great. But yep. so will the thousands other distributions that are out there that will probably just need a tweak or two to do exactly the same thing. Um, yep. The other day on and I'm going to promote a different channel here, the Linux experiment, there was this video about uh, Linux not being about choice. Mm -hmm. And he was right. And that video was pretty interesting. And it goes to, to show that there are many points that we make about Linux because we're passionate about it and we like it so much that just because you've heard it a thousand times does not make them right. Just like open source, because it's open, it's better. It's not just because it's open. It's because it invites collaboration. It's because it lets you improve on other people's work. It's because it improves ev the way everybody programs, because everybody can see the mistakes that the others are doing, and so they won't repeat them themselves. It's because it will let you see how technology is implemented and not just look at the black box. It's not just because it's open. There are other nuances to this. And Linux mm -hmm. is the same thing. It's not just a fantastic operating system like it is. It obviously is. But it is because it fits a niche and it fits a need and the market need. It's stable, it's reliable, it does whatever you want it to do and it does it well enough. And there are specific distributions for basically every single need that you have out there. If you need a good web server distribution, you have it. If you could need a good file system or file server distribution, you have it. If you need one that has ZFS supported, you have it. In, in this case, you have choice. It's not that you don't have choice. You actually have choice. And Linux has many merits there. But it's not just, you can't just say, okay, it's great, it's unhackable. It's not. It has flaws also. It's not just merits. It has flaws yeah. and you can't just say, okay, this is so much better than Windows. Windows has merits as well. I know this right. might come to a shock to some of the, the Linux standards here but yeah it has some merits if it didn't it wouldn't be used by the majority of the the home users okay yep. you could say that it's for a different reason that it's being used so so widely sure it may be but it still is being used by the majority right. of users and yep. there has to be some merit to that even if we don't like wh why that is or if we don't agree why that's a merit or not but there is some intrinsic value there and Linux distributions are just the same thing. In this yep. case, they just happen to be on the top 10 and the top 10 be made just entirely of Linux distributions. I don't like it personally, but that's just my opinion there as well. But uh, yeah, I'm sure next year will be different. I think every month will be different at this point. Every like, month will be different. They know? actually have they actually have the breakdown by day of the number of distribution of the number of uh, vulnerabilities disclosed on the actual report, not just the the post. And mm -hmm. you can see the spikes wherever it's patched Tuesday, so that Microsoft lumps all their vulnerability patches on one day. So you see these huge spikes on the graph on those patched Tuesdays. Um, the big impact that Microsoft has on those numbers of vulnerabilities. Um, it's 
noticeable even on the statistics about this. And another thing that they have that's very interesting on the actual report is that they have this Venn diagram that uh, shows solvable um, vulnerabilities, the ones that have public exploits and the ones that are remote, remotely exploitable. And the ones that are solvable just means that they either have a patch available or a mitigation available. The ones that have public exploits, that's obvious, it's the ones that have code that actually exploit that vulnerability and that it's easily accessible on the internet. And the ones that are remotely exploitable are the ones that means that your system can get attacked by someone on the other end of the world, basically. And yep. it's interesting that there is an intersection of all these three and it, uh, it has this huge number. Over 4,000 vulnerabilities fall on all of these three categories. So you have vulnerabilities that are on one hand easily exploitable because the code is available. They can be exploited remotely and they have mitigations or patches available. The thing here is that you need to actually apply the patch or deploy the mitigation. If you don't, if you're not on top of your game, your systems will be hacked easily. Yep. That's the, the key takeaway there. So take a look at the report. It's pretty interesting there. If you have an interest in security, and you obviously do if you're listening to this podcast about two random guys talking about these things, um, this is interesting, and you'll have some some interesting reading to do there. I also look at the, the order of the distributions on the list, and I notice something that's kind of interesting, and, and it may or may not be true, but I think it is. Because when you think about the popularity of a Linux distribution worldwide, you could kind of see a little bit of a parallel here. Now, in the United States, my understanding is that um, you know, SUSE, for example, isn't as popular here as it is in other countries, but it's extremely popular in other countries. So if you're looking at this through, you know, the, the lens of someone who's used to the statistics in the United States, you would think, well, Ubuntu obviously should be number one because more people are using it, more people's eyes are on it. But when I look at this, you know, I see OpenSUSE Leap is number two on this list. And that's widely used in other countries. Debian is very popular worldwide. And uh, Fedora is very popular, obviously, for people that are uh, Red Hat developers or just, you know, are, are on that platform. And, of course, we have Ubuntu. So I almost wonder if the popularity of distributions has uh, an impact on this because, oh, I know Debian. I'll just start looking for vulnerabilities in Debian. Or I know Fedora very well. I'm going to just focus there because that's what I know. And if that kind of plays into it as well, because sometimes there, there could be vulnerabilities that nobody knows about, <laughs> you know, because it's not as popular of a distribution or it's just not low-hanging fruit. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. There might also be the, the installed user base. Um, I might be looking for vulnerabilities on more where the targets are more readily available. If I look at Windows targets, for example, I know there are millions and millions out there yep. because there are lots more installations of that. Um, it might be that. Uh, Fedora has lots of installations. Uh, I mean, I've been running Fedora on a couple of systems at home since, I don't know, <laughs> since it, before it was called Fedora, since it was still called like Red Hat itself. Um, and yeah, OpenSUSE, OpenSUSE actually strikes me as a bit odd on that list, but because even if it's more widely used elsewhere other than the United States, I'm still unsure how it gets that position there. There might be something else that I'm missing here, but I don't know if I agree with that ranking there. 
-hmm. Again, this might not reflect actually how easily installed or how available it is. It might just mean that some security researchers decided to take a look at this in a different light or actually just, okay, let's see how many bugs we can find on this specific distribution and do like a master thesis or something like that just on it. And mm. yeah, this might just be the result of somebody's <laughs> doctorate thesis or something. It might be. I have a theory actually, because if you think about it, um, a little bit deeper when it comes to OpenSUSE Leap, it's now built on the same you know platform as SUSE Enterprise. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a rolling distribution. So Leap being a rolling distribution and also having uh, direct ties to the code base for Enterprise Linux, I would say is a combination of SUSE's you know their, the popularity overall plus it's rolling. So you have the latest you know libraries. And what's better to focus on than the up-and-coming libraries that'll eventually be in other enterprise distributions? I think, in my opinion, that makes OpenSUSE Leap a pretty big target. True, and that would explain Fedora as well for the same reasons. Yep, that really would. So it's interesting some of the conclusions that you can draw here. And it's also interesting to me, I'm not as knowledgeable on Android as I used to be, but I, I do know that the Pixel slash Nexus devices are the, um, you know, Google blessed versions or, or handsets there. So obviously that's going to give you a standard to focus on, whereas other handsets, they kind of diverge. They put UI enhancements or additional changes on top of Android that some people love or hate. But I almost wonder if that's why Google Pixel and Nexus devices are on the list, because that's a standard, the closest thing to a standard I think Android handsets have, because we don't see like Samsung on here, for example, even though that's huge. Yeah. So that could be another that's, thing too. That's probably the reason. And if you're hacking Google Pixel, if you're finding vulnerabilities in Google Pixel, you're actually looking at Google code itself. So if you find one here, it's probable that it might be reproduced on other on other devices as well. Um, the actual flow, I mean. Um, but yeah, um, market segmentation and different distributions have always been the, the plague of Android. It's both its strengths and its major flaw at the same time. That's so true. I, I remember having, an, the last time I had an Android phone, I believe it was Motorola, and it was a decent phone for sure, but it was brand new, the latest model that they had out. I, I don't remember which one it was. And then there's a new version of Android coming out. And I'm like, okay, when do we get that? And you know, I read the documentation. Uh, never. Yeah, we're not getting updates. It's not gonna happen. So it's like <laughs> even worse in that case because it seems like handset manufacturers would rather not focus on all these constant updates. So if you do find something at Google Pixel, chances are it's probably not patched in these vendor phones that aren't patching anything at all anyway. So then you have uh, a lot of uh, possibility there. So very interesting conclusions can be drawn here yeah. for sure. Yep. All right. And yeah, again, this is an interesting read. If you have a few minutes to spare on your work time or outside of work, um, do take a look. It's interesting read if you're interested in security. It has some more tidbits of information throughout. And take it as an appetizer because in a couple of episodes, we'll be talking at, at uh, about another study that uh, we are actually publishing. It's uh, sponsored by Cloud Linux and Techscare. So yeah, it will have some more interesting information as well. And we'll be looking at that in a couple of episodes. And I think the last thing I'll mention about this is that, I mean, obviously 
um, the question becomes, okay, we, we understand the metrics and the vulnerabilities that are known and unknown. What can we do to you know protect our company? That's something we always talk about. So we're not going to spend any time to give you a blueprint now because there really isn't one. But with each episode, we talk more about the different things that you can do. And it's the sum of all parts that makes you strong, not any one thing. And the sum of each part we'll go over in future episodes. And, um, you know, spoiler alert, the next episode that we're going to do, we're going to talk about something that I think will add a decent um, layer of extra security. Notice how I'm wording this, right? Not yeah. unhackable. I've seen these YouTube yeah. videos that'll have a thumbnail. Make your systems unhackable. Yeah. I cringe every time I see that because there's there you don't. Um, but we'll talk about that in the next episode. But we'll leave a link to these or, or to the study here and you know wherever you're getting this podcast from. And then in the next episode, we are going to talk about something that you might want to consider doing, especially if you're using cloud. Yeah, absolutely. And just to address a comment that we sometimes get on our on our content uh, on this mm -hmm. podcast specifically, um, people ask, are used to asking about um, why don't you give us a specific recipe on how to do this or that or something that you're talking about. Um, there is no easy answer to that, but the basics is that we don't give you a recipe because each environment is different. We cannot give you a straight answer as to what's the best way to secure my systems um, because it depends on what your systems are doing and what system, what software is deployed there and how it's configured, how it's working with other systems. And that's why we don't tell you, okay, now you need to install this specific software and configure it this way and you'll be secure. It doesn't work like that. We try to get to to get awareness about different topics so that when you're considering solutions for your system, you know what to think about, which are the most relevant aspects that you need to consider when making your choices and when finding the right software for your solution and for your actual problems. And that's our goal here. It's to raise awareness about different aspects of the, the enterprise security side of things. And what we discussed today about this vulnerability report if you don't take anything else, the main takeaway there is those one third of vulnerabilities that never get CVEs. That's a really interesting aspect. And that's something that you should consider when you're talking with your security vendor, when your security solution vendor on the next time. How do you guys deal with vulnerabilities that do not have a CVE attached? Ask them that and try to gouge from their response how, how actually how they actually work around that because if they tell you oh if it doesn't have a cve we don't have a way to know about it or to scan it or to deal with it and you might want to consider other solutions that do have some way to do that for example yeah. ones that can download the indicators of compromise without having a cve number attached for example there are those out there and mm -hmm. that's something that you should keep in mind when you're discussing your next security solution and talking with your vendor I think at some point we'll probably be talking more about policies and things that can be implemented. Notice I'm not talking about a blueprint here because mm -hmm. there isn't one, like you said, but there are some ingredients you can consider adding mm -hmm. to your um, specific mix of things that you implement that we will be talking about here and there as it goes on. So just keep listening and um, you'll get it. You'll understand where you stand in this and the types of things that are you know open to you for doing. And um, we'll go from there. Yeah. All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening, watching, or however you are digesting this content. And we'll see you again next week. See you on the next one. Bye.